Well, I'd invite you to take a seat. Uh, get yourself comfortable. If you need to get yourself under a fan, please do that. Now is the time to, uh, to do that. Uh, as Pat said earlier, my name is Chris. I'm one of the communicators here at Beyond, and I would love to welcome you as we launch uh, 2018. Uh, and to do that, we're going to launch that with a four-week discussion around uh, this idea of decisions. Uh, and to, to kind of lead us into this discussion that we're going to begin to have over the next couple of weeks, I want to ask you one simple question. What do you hope for 2018? When you look forward to the year of 2018, our computer crashed before, we're having some technical difficulties. Our guys up the back are doing a fantastic job. They'll get there eventually. Um, but what do you hope for 2018? When you look forward to the year that, that is going to come, what do you hope? Do you hope maybe to lose those five kilos that you gained over Christmas? Do you hope maybe to meet the one? You're going to meet him, you're going to meet her, it's going to be magical. Do you hope maybe to finally finish uni after deferring it for the last 17 years? Is this the year that happens? Do you hope, if you're in high school, that you will get a good enough OP that your parents won't ask any questions? Is that what, is that what you hope? Maybe you hope to get into the OP course that you want. Maybe for some of you, you've got some completely different hopes. You hope that, that maybe you'll have some margin in your bank account this year. You hope that maybe you can get yourself out of the debt that you've been uh, kind of come into over this Christmas period. Maybe for some of you, uh, you hope that you can reconnect with maybe your mum or your dad, or you can restore that fractured relationship. Maybe for some of you, you hope this year, you hope against hope that you'll walk onto the school grounds for the very first time and your hope is that they will have decided and they will have found someone else to pick on and they will have found someone else to make fun of for this year. You hope that school is bearable for you. And regardless of, uh, of whether you want to call it a New Year's resolution, whether you want to call it a goal, whether you want to call it a dream, or whether you want to call it a hope, I'm, I'm more inclined to call it a hope. Because as human beings, uh, we are all drawn to this idea of hope. We all hope for something. We're all drawn, we all, we all place our hope in something, and we all have this idea of what the future could look like. But, but you and I know that hope, having a hope isn't enough. Just having a hope for the year ahead isn't enough. It's not enough to hope to lose those five kilos, is it? It's not enough to hope to get the grade that you want. It's not enough to hope that you'll just fall into your dream job. You, you and I know that having a hope is where it begins, but that having a hope isn't all that it's cracked up to be, and it's just not enough. In fact, uh, there's a fantastic book that was released on the back end of last year by a guy called John Acuff, uh, and he wrote this book, it's called Finish, because, uh, because he knew that having a hope isn't enough. In fact, in the book, uh, he cites this statistic that 92% of all New Year's resolutions fail. And that wasn't because they didn't have a hope. It wasn't because they weren't shooting for something. It wasn't because they didn't have something in mind or something they were moving towards. But for whatever reason, that hope never turned into a reality. So what is it? What is it that, that makes us kind of have these hopes and then we can kind of go through maybe five, ten years of life and, and that hope never became a reality? Maybe you've never thought about that. Maybe you think about it so much that you've kind of analysed and you've got all these reasons why your hope never became a reality. And I want to give you something to consider. It's something super, super simple. Uh, in fact, you've, you're so smart that you've probably already thought of it, but you thought this idea was too simple to be the answer. 
And the reason that maybe our New Year's resolutions fail, and that maybe the reason that you have a hope that you haven't quite got to yet, is because of one thing. Decisions. Each and every day, when you think about it, we are confronted with hundreds, probably thousands of decisions. Do you hit snooze on the alarm clock? What time do you set the alarm for? Do you have a shower straight away? Do you get breakfast at home? Do you get breakfast on the run? Do you have breakfast at all? Do you get a coffee? Do you get a skinny chai latte? Do you get reduced fat and milk? Are you going to catch the train today? Do you need to pack your bag for the gym afterwards? Are you driving today? Who's going to be uh, on the, the boss on the car checking the clock end time? Can you afford to be five minutes late? And that's just the start of the day. We have all these decisions that we're faced with day after day after day after day. And decisions are the reason that our hopes don't become a reality. Because we all have a decision filter. Whether, you, whether you're conscious about this or not, we all have a decision filter. You filter your decisions through some kind of filter each and every single day. You hear a song and you filter in your mind whether it's a good song or whether it's a bad song. Whether you will share this on your Instagram story and be like, this song is so lit. Or whether you're going to be like, oh, this is like burning my ears. You have a filter which you um, filter decisions through. You have a filter that you, dis- uh, you have a decision filter that you filter friendships through. Is this someone I want to spend more time with? Is this someone, ah, not really. You have a a filter that you filter moral decisions through, ethical decisions through. Some of you, and and in fact, uh, maybe a good chunk of you, have a religious filter. When you look at decisions, you think, I've got to make this decision. Maybe what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? Maybe for some of you, you've just got a mentor. What What would my mentor say? Each and every one of us has a decision filter of some kind, whether whether you're aware of it or whether you're not, it's there, just lying beneath the surface. But where our decisions fail to move us towards our hopes is just because, for the most part, our decision filter focuses primarily on the present, not on the future. I mean, all you, all you have to, to do uh, to see this is, is, is just look at the gym at the start of the year. Everyone's in the gym. The gym is packed, and then all of a sudden, it gets to Friday afternoon, and that decision filter kicks in. What do I feel like doing right now? Do I want to go to the gym or do I want to order a large double quarter pounder meal with a double cheeseburger on the side? That's actually my McDonald's order most of the times, by the way. (laughs) Unless I'm being healthy, then it's just a single cheeseburger. (laughs) But we all filter our decisions through something and for the majority of us, we filter that decision through, what do I want to do now? What do I want to do right now? Not necessarily the future. And you're smart, so you already know this, but the reason that we're talking about this is because the decisions you make today determine the story that you tell tomorrow. Every decision that you made today led you here. And it will determine, in some way, the story you tell tomorrow. I went to church last night. I went to this Beyond place last night. Each and every one of your decisions in life has led you to where you are, whether that's relationally, financially, whether that's with education or whether you chose to pursue a trade or whether you decided to do something else entirely, each and every one of your decisions impacts and has led towards the story that you tell today. And some of those decisions you're so proud of. And for some of us, some of those decisions have led to chapters of our story that we hope that no one ever reads. And the reason that we're we're launching this series is because we want you to make great decisions this year. Not just this year, but for the rest of your life. But we don't get there by focusing on the present. We get there by realising that the decisions we make today 
will determine the story we tell tomorrow. So if you have to leave at any point tonight, just remember this one big idea and you'll be fine. But I want to kind of give you a, a real practical application for this tonight. And I want to do that through giving us a snapshot into the life of one individual who walked the earth about a thousand years before Jesus lived. And this person's uh, life, we kind of get a, a snapshot of just a conversation that this person had. And in this conversation that we're going to look at, this person is faced with a decision to make. And the decision that they were going to make was going to change the trajectory of the story they were going to tell. That was ultimately going to impact uh, hundreds and thousands of people that they, would, uh, that they would lead. But in order to kind of give us a little bit of backstory so we're all on the same page, I want to give you some context for this conversation before we, if we jump right in. Because the story we're going to look at tonight is David's story. And if you're brand new to church and you're like, who is David? Uh, if you've got no church experience, maybe, maybe you've heard of the story of David and Goliath, the boy that, that slayed the giant. Well, this is that David. And if you have no church experience and you're kind of like, I'm drawing a blank here, that's all right, let me, let me bring you up to speed. Uh, David was born in the, the city of Bethlehem, uh, and maybe some of you are like, that, that, no, that Bethlehem, that sounds familiar. It was, uh, it was the town in which Jesus was born in a thousand years later, and we sing about it a whole heap in Christmas carols. So we've probably, you've probably heard it uh, in Coles since like July last year, just pumping out in some level. But uh, David was born in Bethlehem. His dad was a guy called Jesse, and he had eight brothers. And David was the youngest of these brothers. And, and what happened when you were the youngest is that you were, you were sent out uh, to tend the farm, to tend the sheep. And so David was a shepherd for most of his days. And one day, a prophet, a man of God named Samuel, entered Bethlehem. And he was looking for someone. And he found that person in Jesse's house. And he said, Jesse, where are your sons? Because I've got something to tell you about one of their futures. And Jesse brought his sons around the table, and Samuel's sitting there, and he goes, there's, there's one missing. Where's David? He says, David, that's, he's the youngest one. He's out in the field. He's, he's tending the sheep. What could you possibly have to say about David's future that would be important? And so they go out and they bring David back. And Samuel, in front of uh, David's dad and in front of his, his brothers, says, David, one day you are going to be the king of Israel. But you're going to be a king unlike any other king. Because the kings that Israel have had up until this point in time people haven't really wanted to follow. You're going to be a king that inspires people to follow you. People are going to change the way that they understand and they're actually going to want to follow you, not because they have to, but because they desire to follow you. See, David's story right from a very young age was a story that was future-focused. The problem, the problem with David's story was that at the time that Samuel told that to David, uh, Israel already had a king. Uh, his name was King Saul, and he was not a very good king at all. Uh, and over time, David kind of realized this, and he goes, okay, I've got a future, I've got a purpose in, in my future. And so he went back to being a shepherd, and he kind of landed on King Saul's radar when he killed Goliath. And he kind of started to float on King Saul's radar, and then he kind of started to make a little bit of noise, a little bit of noise, a little bit more noise. And it got to the point where Saul, who was a really jealous, not a great leader at all, really jealous, really insecure leader was jealous that David would maybe usurp him, maybe send an assassin after him so he could take the throne himself. And so King Saul did what any insecure leader does. Uh, he sent someone and he chased someone to try and kill David. 
And David did what anyone did in that day and age when someone was trying to kill them. They booked it into the wilderness. But the wilderness is not like the Australian outback that we now know. The wilderness was dry. The wilderness was barren. But the wilderness was a place that was controlled by warlords. It was a place where if you weren't big enough, if you weren't strong enough, if you weren't tough enough, if someone walked under your territory and you couldn't defend yourself, it wasn't your territory anymore. It became that warlord's territory. And to give you an idea of just how good a leader David was, as he flees King Saul and as he spends years in the wilderness, he, he uh, begins to grow an army that eventually grows to 600. David is such a fantastic leader that he is, has an army of 600 in the wilderness. David is a warlord. But David is a warlord distinct from the other warlords. In fact, when shepherds and people would pass through his territory, instead of ransacking them, instead of taking what was theirs and and building it into his own empire, he would offer protection to shepherds. He would send them on their way, he would offer them rest and food, and he would continue to move them on. And one day, there's some, uh, a number of uh, shepherds pass through David's camp. And David knows or has heard about the person that they work for, because the person they work for was a local entrepreneur, uh, which in those days is really just a fancy word for you owned a lot of sheep and a lot of goats. And this guy's name was Nabal. And so David took care of these guys. He, he made sure that their, their flocks were tended to, and he sent them on their way back to Nabal. And then shearing time came around, and David was wondering whether Nabal would repay the favour, because he had flocks that needed to be sheared. He had men that were hungry. So David says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send two of my men out to Nabal, and I'm going to ask Nabal, hey, remember that time I scratched your back? Well, maybe could you scratch mine? Could you you help me out a little bit? Could you repay the favour? And so these two men set off, and they meet Nabal, And the answer that they get from Nabal and the reaction, the reception they get is not what we would expect. In fact, Nabal pretends that he doesn't even know David. And then he begins to mock him. And he sends them away in disgrace. And they come back to David and they relay the message. And David does probably what any warlord in that situation would do. Anyone who's tired, anyone who's hungry, anyone who's like, it's shearing season, we just need a good feed, we just need to tend uh, our flocks. He goes, right, I'm going to kill him. And I'm going to take that land by force. And so David sets out. He takes 400 of his 600 men and he sets out to Nabal to teach him a lesson. Meanwhile, back at Nabal's camp, still tracking. A lot of weird names, I know. We'll get there, don't worry. Meanwhile, back at Nabal's camp, Nabal's wife, Abigail, who is way out of Nabal's league, if you, if you read the, the story, which you should. Um, it's in 1 Samuel. If you get bored during the week, you can read it. But Abigail, she's smart, and she doesn't want her husband being killed. So she kind of packs a care package because she thinks, you know, what are men like? They like food. So she packs a care package, and she, she starts out on this mission to intercept David and his 400 men before David makes a decision that not only takes her husband away, but also would alter the course of his future. And we're going to pick up the story right as Abigail intersects with David and reminds him just how important this decision is going to be in the story that he will tell in the future. And she says this, as soon as Abigail 
saw David, she got off her donkey and fell on her knees at his feet. It's a kind of sign of respect. And then this is what she says. Her face to the ground in homage, she said, my master, let me take the blame. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you're really worked up, you're mad and you're about to send that email, you're about to send that text, you're about to make that phone call, when all of a sudden you get a text or someone walks into your office and you go, hey, you know that thing that you're mad about? Yeah, it's on me. It, it, it wasn't their fault, it wasn't his fault, it wasn't her fault, it's, it's my fault. All of a sudden you're kind of stunned. You're like, what? hang on, what? Hang on, can I just go back to being mad at the person I was originally mad at? It sounds like a lot more fun to me. And Abigail knew that this would stun David a little bit. And she says this next. She says, let me speak to you. Listen to what I have to say. Abigail deliberately kind of threw David off a little bit because she wanted his anger to settle. Because she didn't want David to hear what she was saying. She wanted him to listen. And you all know, as well as I do, that when you get angry and when you get mad and when it's someone else's fault... And when you're in the right, we don't have a good tendency to listen. And we make a whole heap of decisions that we later regret. And once she's got David's attention, this is what she says. Don't dwell on what that brute Nabal did. He acts out of the meaning of his name, Nabal, fool. Imagine having that as a name. What does your name mean, fool? (laughs) Foolishness oozes from him. This is his wife talking about, I know, he's an idiot, I get it, I totally understand. But in that moment as well, what Abigail is doing is kind of like stroking David's ego a little bit. Because she's saying, David, if Nabal's a fool, that makes you wise. And fools are too foolish to realize that they're fools. But wise people like you, David, you understand when you're dealing with a fool and you overlook the insult. You look past it because you realize that they don't know any better, but you know better because, David, you're so wise. And once she's kind of de-escalated the situation, this is what she says. She says, I wasn't there when the young men my master sent arrived. I didn't see them. And now my master, as God lives, and uh, you have, God has kept you from avenging this murder. And then he goes on. Forgive my presumption, but God is at work in my master. In other words, what she's doing is she's saying, David, remember, remember back when you were in Bethlehem. Remember when Samuel came and sat at your table with your brothers and sisters. And he said, you're going to be the future king of Israel. Look at the men that you've got with you. You've got 400 men with you and it's just a small portion of the, of the army that you've amassed in the wilderness. Think back to the time that you killed Goliath. God is doing something in you. Just look at the past. And then she points him to the future, developing a solid, a rule, solid and dependable. In other words, David, every decision that you have made in your life up until this point has made you someone worth following has made you someone that people look up to. But at this point in time, you're about to make a decision. And it can go one of two ways. Because either way, you will be king of Israel one day. But one decision will lead to you telling a story that looks completely different from the other. In one story, you kill Nabal. And now every single person 
who from now on who follows you looks up to you and goes, can we really trust him? When the heat is on, can we trust David or is he just going to lose his cool again? Remember that time with the whole Nabal situation, David? Do you really want to tell that story, David? Do you really want to undo every decision that you've made up until this point in your life? Or do you want to make a different decision? Do you want to make a decision that one day when you're king, people will look back on this and go, David's someone we can look up to. David's solid. David's dependable. Remember when that fool antagonized him? Remember how he responded? This is someone we want to follow. And eventually, David made the decision not to go after Nabal. And it changed the trajectory of his life. Sure, he made a whole heap of other dumb decisions later on. You can, you can read that. Just, just start at 1 Samuel 25 and just you can read uh, and you can read some of David's dumb decisions. But this wasn't one of them. And the reason that David was able to make this decision is simple. Because David knew the story he wanted to tell. David was looking to the future. And David said, when I get there, I want to be able to tell a certain story. And in the story that I want to tell, I want people to look up to me. I want people to want to follow me. And for you and for me this year, making great decisions begins with knowing the story that you want to tell. For so many of us, we just make a whole heap of decisions and we don't actually know the story that we want to tell at the end. And so what I want to do, just for tonight, just to kind of start us out on the, uh, kind of, to come back next week, is I want to give you a little bit of homework. Don't worry, it's not difficult. And I want to ask you a question. Now, we kind of frame these questions, we call them our Four Monday. Because we believe whether you've been a Christian your whole life, whether it's your first time to church, or whether you're, you're kind of like, I'm just sussing this whole thing out. We want the time that you spend with us to actually not just benefit you in this moment, but to benefit you for the rest of your week. And so the question I want you to go and think about this week is simply this. What story do you want your life to tell? When you look forward or you look back over the story of your life, what story do you want your life to tell? And I find that there's, there's usually two ways that people do it. There's usually two categories people fall into when they begin to think about this. The first way is that they, they look to the future. This is not what I'm good at. Some people are really good at this, but they look to the future and they're able to answer this question. In 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years, this is the story I want my life to tell. And, and, and if that's you, I'd encourage you, think of this story into the future. When you look 20 years down the time, what kind of relationships do you want to have? What kind of friendships do you want to have? What kind of financial state do you want to be in? What kind of story do you want your life to tell? But maybe you're a little bit more like me. Maybe you're a little bit more morbid. And I don't know why my brain works this way, but I like to look backwards. That helps me determine the story I want to tell. And one of the ways I do that, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but that's okay. You don't have to do it this way. It's to simply just ask, if I was at my funeral and my husband or my wife, someone from my family someone from my church or someone from my workplace or someone from my community, just someone from a whole heap of different areas in your life, if they had to get up and speak on my life for 10 minutes, what kind of story would I want them to tell? Would it be the kind of story that talks about how big your bank account was? Would it be the kind of story that, that talks about how many Instagram followers you had? Would it be the kind of story that talks about how many houses you had or how many boats you had or how many overseas trips you went on? 
What kind of story do you want your life to tell? And think about that, whether that's looking forward or looking back, whichever way you want to do it. And if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I just want to talk directly to you, just for a second. And I want you to kind of add another wrinkle to this. And I want you to ask, is the story you're telling pointing people to Jesus' story? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, your story, the life you live, should ultimately point people to a bigger story should ultimately help them find their story in the midst of the story that God has for their life. Because just like David has a purpose, just like you have a purpose, every single person, we believe, has been created in the image of God. And that means every single person is immeasurably valuable. In fact, they're so valuable that God would give up His life for the chance of a relationship with them. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to ask that question as well. How does your story point people to Jesus' story? And when you, when you begin to do this this week, when you begin to reflect on it and, and think, what kind of story do you want you, your life to tell? You'll begin to, to discover that when you understand the story you want to tell in the end, you are more likely to make better decisions in the present. When you understand the story you want to tell next week, next month, next year, in the next 10 years, you are able to get a clarity that very few people have. Because all of a sudden, you're not running around making decisions in the moment. All of a sudden, it's easier to get your head above the waves, to get out of the ocean and begin to see, where are these decisions leading me? And are they leading me in a direction that I want to end up in? So take some time, think about that this week and next week when you come back for part two, we're going to give you a question, one question that you'll be able to use as a decision filter to help you make, ensure, really ensure that you tell the story that you want to tell in the end. But first, you have to discover and you have to find out what story you want your life to tell in the first place. I'd love to pray for you right now and as I pray, the band's going to come back up. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we're able to take a snapshot into the life of David, that we're able to get a glimpse before he was a king how some of those decisions had the potential to impact on his rule. And Lord, I pray here tonight that maybe people who are stepping into beyond for the very first time or people who have maybe never ever considered this question, what story do they want their life to tell, would begin to reflect we begin to, at this time of beginnings, begin to imagine what their life story would be. And for those of us who follow you, Lord, I pray that if we've overlooked, that we would begin to seriously see where is our story pointing to Jesus' story. Lord, help us to find our purpose in a bigger story and help us to make better decisions this year. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.